0: are listening to radio influence this is the place that the ufc and bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts the doors of the gym are opened up just for you we are the mma insiders on radio influence the past couple of episodes of the MMA Insiders Podcast, we've been talking about SADA and anti-doping, the UFC anti-doping policy, but on this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the regulatory side and more the legal side of mixed martial arts as I am going to be joined by a man that I have been accused of, I don't know if we just say his twins, there's actually someone in the MMA industry thought that was me and that that was another persona that I had out there, which uh, was not definitely not the case. Eric McGrocket. We're going to bring him in, talk about the legal side of MMA and, of course, uh, New York State Athletic Commission, what happened UFC 210. So many things to talk to Eric about, but, of course, I want to let you know about my sponsor, Fight TV, which is a go-to app for MMA fans and practitioners. Live pay-per-views, TV tapings, full-length matches, interviews, movies, and documentaries. Next Friday, Battleground MMA car. That'll be on the call with Dustin Poe will be available on Fight TV for fourteen ninety nine. so you definitely want to check us out calling those fights next Friday night here in my hometown of Tampa, Florida. To download the Fight app, all you have to do is go to fight. F-I-T-E dot TV forward slash radio influence forward slash once again. That is fight. F-I-T-E dot T V forward slash radio influence forward slash. That link is also available on radioinfluence.com, which is a home of the MA Insiders Podcast. Eric, I appreciate the time. Were you aware that someone thought that uh, we were the same person?
1: I saw that tweet, yeah, and then I looked at your profile pick and and yeah, we've got a, we've got a haunting similarity and our good looks, Jason.
0: I uh, it was funny when uh, cause it was someone in, in public relations for a notable MMA organization they even uh, text me ab- about it and I ended up showing my wife and she's like yeah y'all do look like each other so uh, <laughs> so yeah but uh, you know uh, you uh, you, of course you have your website com. first off how did you uh, get interested in, in combat sports law
1: it used to be called the Canadian MMA law blog.com and I started it back MMA used to be illegal in Canada but what the various jurisdictions did is they didn't care. They just let the UFC come to town and let other events flourish. And uh, several years ago, there was discussion and, and there's lobbying by the UFC to overhaul the Canadian criminal code to, to make uh, combat sports legal or to make um, sports uh, um, combat sports other than boxing legal. And so I just followed that regulatory process and from there, I just kept going because once they cleared the landscape to make it legal, there was all sorts of regulatory nonsense that kept going on. So it just seemed like week after week, there were other stories uh, worth reporting on. So I just kept at it for the past coming on five years now.
0: It's crazy because I was listening to a, a recent radio interview you did where prize fighting in Canada is actually illegal, but there's loopholes that allow MMA and boxing.
1: Yes. So the main difference between Canada and the U.S. is in Canada, we've got federal legislation. So so across the entire country, the default position is combat sports are illegal. And then the federal government delegated to the provinces the ability to change that default position if they want to. And some provinces have legalized uh, various combat sports. Others have failed to do so. So you've got patches in Canada still where MMA is illegal, and um, where uh, you know that's that radio interview you're referring to. That was probably based on what was happening in Quebec. Quebec is uh, one of the provinces that hasn't updated their laws since the Criminal Code was overhauled, and so Montreal police started shutting down. Uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu contest because technically it's caught under the language of Canada's criminal code as an illegal prize fight, even though these are amateur contests with no prizes being handed out. So, so so you've got this broad umbrella legislation in Canada making fighting by default illegal.
0: Yeah, that was crazy when, when I saw it and I was listening to your interview there. I was like, wow, that, that's amazing. Uh, you know, you follow the, the legal side so well. Uh, what do you think is the biggest legal MMA story out there right now? Is it just the New York State Athletic Commission because we're just uh, a couple days removed from UFC 210?
1: Yeah. You know, that as a standalone event, I wouldn't say that's the biggest story, but that, you know, sort of weaves into the regular topic of, you know, athletic commissions botching their job in general. So that's, you know, you know, that's the type of story that keeps my my website going and keeps me going. <laughs> but but in terms of like the biggest um Story, I, you know, I don't know if that is something that's in the headlines or will be in the headlines soon, but but for me, the big three always are doping in the sport, and, mm-hmm. and you know, you get incidents popping up from time to time. So doping is always um, a big topic, and you know, the number one topic for me is probably rapid extreme weight cuts. I think that's a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. And the last one is brain trauma. You know, know, just the reality of brain trauma and CTE in the sport. So from the legal side of things, those are the big three that I keep coming back to.
0: Yeah, I mean, weight cutting obviously is a big issue. It's it's going to be interesting because in July, I'm actually going to go up to the ABC meeting, which this year is being held at the Mohegan Sun. And uh, I'm really interested if Larry Hazard's going to show up to the meeting this year?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know, but, but on, the, on the regulatory side of weight cutting, the one guy who deserves a big shout-out is Andy Foster mm-hmm. out in California. I mean, that man's taking his job as a regulator seriously. He's tackling rapid weight cuts uh, more aggressively than anybody out there, and, and he's willing to stand out. Like, what I really respect about... Um, Andy is, he's not waiting for there to be consensus on this. He's identifying the problem. He's saying, we've got to fix this. We can't let the status quo go. He's investing money in, in, in fashioning solutions, and he's going ahead and making these solutions. And it seems like the ABC is listening to what Andy's doing. So that guy is, you know, a real trailblazer in, in regulatory reform, and I think he's doing it for all the right reasons. So, you know, just, just some public praise for him. But, but you know, unless other unless other regulators follow his lead i think it's just a matter of time until there's going to be a real tragedy uh related to a rapid wave cut in north america and i think the regulators themselves are going to have a tough time escaping liability if it happens under their watch
0: yeah that's interesting that that you bring up liability because that was you know one of the questions that uh, i got here uh, this came from Tim Torres. It's a long question, but it, it does have to do about, you know, lawsuits could a fire uh, ultimately sue a commission where uh, Tim wrote this. He goes, can a fire sue a commission when the judges are primarily looking for damage in a fight, even though the wording has been changed to effective striking, yet judges are trained to look for damage. If a UFC or Bellator fighter suffers severe brain trauma, does the word effective striking save the athletic commission from a lawsuit?
1: Yeah, I I think a fighter would be hard pressed to sue a commission if they're hurt in a bout simply because of the nature of the bout. I think you need something else going on. And and I was down in Vegas when um, uh, this was last year in August at the last ABC meeting when they voted on these uh, various rule changes. And one of the things that was being debated was using the word damage in the in the. First draft of the updated judging criteria, they used the word damage, but because it was you know i guess controversial um, some commissions persuaded the rule drafter to change it to um you know whatever it says now I think it's effective striking effective grappling you know as opposed to damage and I don't think the the wording itself creates any liability whatsoever. I mean, at the end of the day, this is fighting, and these guys are trying to damage each other. Frankly, I'd prefer if they use the word damage just because it's, you know, you're not dancing around what you're looking at here. I'm I'm a licensed judge with the BC Athletic Commission in Muay Thai, MMA, and kickboxing, and I could tell you the regulations in my province do use the word damage. And as a judge, I actually really – prefer that and respect that because when I'm sitting there watching about, it's very clear what I'm looking at, and if athletes ask me as the judge what's the criteria, it's, you know, you know, bottom line is who's hurting the other guy more? It's a pretty basic thing to look for. Uh, and I don't think that the commissions do any favors by dancing around that word, and by using that word or not using that word, I don't see any legal liability whatsoever that flows to it. I just really don't. I think, I think um, clarity in language is a good thing. But, but you know, at the end of the day, it, it, you know, if if a fighter came to me and said I got really hurt because I was damaged and the judges were trained to look for damage or the commission is saying that there should be damage, I want to sue them. I'd say give me a break. I mean, you're getting them the ring to do damage to your opponent. That's the nature of the sport. So I don't think there's any liability that would flow from that wording.
0: And you mentioned about getting back to weight cutting, and Andy Foster serves a lot of credit for what he is trying to do in California. It could be a – if what he wants to do ends up going through, he's probably going to lose fighters that will not fight in California. Now, if his plan can go across the board, which that is part of the problem on the regulatory side of things is – State to states it's different rules. For instance, you know we're talking here two days before uh, the UFC card that's going to be in Missouri on Saturday night. The Fox card. They are one of the states that has not adapted the new unified rules in may. And quite frankly, they're not. Um, they are. There is a faction of the regulatory side that. Uh, I, I, the way I describe this is: Are you Team Missouri Foster Bennett? Or are you team Bernie Lukinoff or uh, Hazard? Is, is the best way to describe it because there, there's two different philosophies. But the one thing I love about New Jersey is at least they're being open and honest about and, and giving why they have a problems with. There's a lot of states who are not for the unified rules and they're just, but they won't say anything. And there are also commissions that didn't show up to the ABC meeting last year, which there's there's another issue there. But uh, you know, an interesting. Speaking of weight cutting, you know, Leandro Higo was supposed to fight for the Bellator bantamweight title on Friday of this week. I learned uh, basically when I woke up this morning, got a got a little tip that he actually missed weight. Uh, He missed weight by four pounds, and he was not given any additional time to cut weight because of where his body uh, percent was at. They were not going to let him cut any weight, which this is something. You're starting to see more commissions do it, but i I think no matter what commissions do, they're never going to stop extreme weight cutting.
1: yeah, you know in terms of in terms of the infighting amongst various regulators, it really is unfortunate that you can't get everybody on the same page and I think you know I think fighters are shortchanged and and the sports themselves are shortchanged when you have this disparity in regulation from state to state and province to province it, it, yeah you know that's too bad but change takes time and and on the weight cutting front i guess somebody has to lead so you've got mm-hmm. andy leading and hopefully you know whatever whatever camp folks are in when it comes to the judging criteria or the rule changes hopefully everybody could support the changes andy's proposing when it comes when it comes to weight cutting but even if you don't have consensus you know things you know, the regulatory changes do make a difference because not all promoters are big-time promoters, right? So you Mm -hmm. have the UFC or you have the Bellator, you have these other um, big-money promoters who could choose from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but then you have the small-time guys within the state or within the province, and they don't travel around, and those regulatory changes affect the sport from the bottom up, and I think that's a good thing. You know, I think there's going to be, you know, long-term change. In terms of can you kill weight cutting entirely you know i don't know if you can um i i told this to the abc i don't have the solutions but i could point to the problem quite well in terms of how this would play out in a courtroom my biggest issue with rapid weight cuts is you have a rule designed for fighter safety right weight classes exist so people of the general same size are fighting each other you don't Mm -hmm. want a huge disparity in size and the regulators who exist for fighter safety, create these rules. It's a rule made for fighter safety. And then right right under their own noses, they let it get perverted to become maybe the biggest danger in the sport. So instead of having two guys the same size fighting each other, they're going to allow guys to cut as much weight as, you know, safely or unsafely possible and then balloon up uh, and put back as much weight as they can within the next 24, 30 some odd hours and then fight each other. And that weight cut is becoming probably the biggest danger in the sport. You have as many people uh, suffering long-term harm from the effects of extreme weight cuts than you do people, uh, you know, from fighting. And, And so that perversion of a safety rule to become a danger that's what's really legally problematic and, and i actually got up at the last abc conference and i told every regulator that showed up there that this is the biggest legal threat you guys are facing when somebody drops dead under your watch because of a rapid weight cut or you know maybe they suffer profound brain trauma in the bout and you could tie that at least in part to the dehydration from the rapid extreme weight cut that's the you know you know that's the most straightforward case of regulatory negligence I could think of. And to that extent, and to the extent that regulators start taking it seriously, you are going to have change, and I don't know if you're going to eradicate it entirely, but if you could really minimize how much weight these guys are cutting, I think that's going to be a good thing, but only time will tell where this thing goes.
0: I've had my suggestion, I've told a couple of regulators this. Start the penalty for missing weight at 50%. If, yeah, if you start yeah. hurting them in their pocket, all of a sudden, I think you'll start finding guys start making weight a lot easier.
1: Yeah, I always thought, and you know, and again, I'm I'm, I'm open to criticism here because I've been brainstorming this for a while. But I always thought the best solution is you have a requirement that guys make weight while being hydrated and. The check and balance for that, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a urine specific gravity test. People tell me that could be gamed, but you have a doctor because doctors are present during the weigh-ins. Have the doctor sign off that the fighter satisfies them, that they're not showing any sounds of profound dehydration. So when you get Johnny Hendricks shaking on the scale there and then he goes back (laughs) to cut more weight, that guy shouldn't be fighting, right? When you have the heart going 100 miles an hour or you have other signs of medical distress doctors could check for this stuff and i think the commissions should rely on the ringside physicians who are present at the weigh-in to sign off that this man or woman isn't dehydrated and from there that gives the commission themselves cover but it also you know it also fixes the problem it addresses the problem and you know it's one of those you break a few omelette situation where you bring this in, you're going to have fighters kicked off events, you're going to have cards fall apart, you're going to have promoters lose money, but it's short-term pain, and eventually people are going to get the message that we're not going to you know, rapidly dehydrate 15, 20, 30 pounds to make weight. If I do that, I'm not going to fight even if I make weight. And after you have a couple events, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm um, um, – um, you know, turned about or, or a couple of guys kicked off cards. I think everybody in the industry is going to get the message. I always thought it was so absurd. You have two guys fighting at, say, 145, and all that means is 24 hours before, for one minute in time, these guys mm-hmm. are 145 or 146. And when they're competing, who cares if they're 155, or 160? It's just the most absurd thing that you have two guys that are a similar size dehydrates to a lower similar size and then rehydrate to what their original size was. And there is parity, right? Like you don't get a lot of huge mismatches from one guy cutting more. By and large, guys are entering the cage or ring the same size. It's just they go through this absurd exercise of cutting down to the lower weight. So I, I don't see a reason why it can't be fixed. But um, people like the status quo, you know? People don't like change. But it, you know, hopefully it doesn't take tragedy to, to affect change. And, you know, for the first time in a while, I actually have some, some hope that that change is coming with with uh, California's efforts here.
0: Yeah, I mean in July the ABC conference is gonna be very interesting to see if uh ultimately something does come down with weight cutting, which uh you know, last uh Friday morning it was amazing what happened. Um I've watched a lot of MMA weigh ins. I can't ever recall seeing a fighter hold the towel. Um you know whether, you know, Daniel Cormier one up the system, whatnot. It was it was interesting to me to see how other MMA fighters reacted to that situation, and then to have the one of the commissioners, the New York commission, go. Uh, I don't think he was holding the towel. Like, um, yeah, no, there's video evidence he was. Which I think the bigger sign of that makes you go, is a New York State Athletic Commission really ready for major MMA?
1: Yeah, you know, on the one hand, you almost have to admire Cormier here because he pulled a fast one and got away with it. And then within a matter of minutes, the commission was going, wink, wink, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> basically, we're okay with what the guy did. Uh, you know, fighters are going to do what they have to do to make weight. And, you know, that includes gaming the system, I guess. But that's why the regulators exist. They have to call them out on this stuff. When the regulators then complicit with it and they're you know, not crying foul, that's where the problem really lies. Uh, and yeah, I saw that video too, where, where after the weigh-in, uh, a representative of the commission was confronted, and he basically played dumb. I mean, it was just it was just nuts. He basically was pretending. Oh, the towel. He held the towel the first time, and that made him heavier. And the second time, he wasn't holding the towel, and then he was lighter. I mean, give me a break. It was just such a, you know, such an absurd thing. And on the legal side, you now have um, Anthony Johnson making noise, yeah. saying he wants a cut of of the purse, and I think that's a problem as well because a he didn't uh, squawk ahead of time, right? Like if you have mm-hmm. a problem with how the guy made weight, you should speak up before the bout, not after the bout. Uh, the second issue is. On the books in New York, there's a requirement that the opponent is present during the weigh-ins. Now, uh, Anthony Johnson weighed in shortly, I think it was shortly after Cormier. He was obviously in the vicinity, but he wasn't present. He wasn't there looking at the scales, watching this towel incident unfold. And so the commission ignored their own rules doing these early weigh-ins by not having each opponent present. Now, they've got the discretion to waive that, but I don't think they went and formally waived it. They just you know, let the UFC do the weigh-ins the way the UFC likes to do their weigh-ins right now. But there's a built-in mechanism, and it's being present. And Anthony Johnson chose not to be present when Cormier was there, and he chose not to speak up before the bout. And then I I guess the third strike against him, he's asking, or his legal representative is asking for 20% of Cormier's purse. But when you go through the New York um, regulations, and this comes down to, you know, the sport not being, you know, there being no consensus in the way the sport is regulated across the U.S. and Canada, the New York regulations don't say an opponent gets 20% of their opponent's purse when they fail to make weight. You know, New York, as you might recall from, I think it was UFC 200, um, or maybe it was you know another event in New York, they're in the habit not of fining people for missing weight, but suspending them for missing weight. That tends to be their regulatory default position. So uh and when they find the person there's nothing that says it goes to the opponent the commission takes that fine so i don't think yeah. anthony johnson is going to have any success in taking part of cormier's purse here but from a you know from a fan perspective from a public perspective there was a lot of embarrassment on the regulatory front from what new york let happen during that weigh-in.
0: yeah i never liked the commissions who make money off a guy missing weight i i just say if there's you know and most of the times it's it's an agreed upon fine it's not a hard and stance rule for the most part i always feel that you know hey if uh you know the fighter you know fighter a misses weight fighter b should get all that fine i've never liked the the commissions being able to to profit to off a guy missing weight because for you know commissions you know i mean look they're they're not supposed to lose money but they're not necessarily there to make money either i mean it, it's it's a it's a weird situation when it comes to Uh, that in terms of weigh-in but of course that was one of of multiple issues with the new york state athletic commission and, and kind of i i feel like they're writing the rules as they go along do you kind of feel that same way
1: well with the breast implant issue um was her name pearl gonzalez was told she can't fight at least momentarily because she has breast implants. and then I guess they read their own rules and recognized that there is no prohibition for it in MMA. And so, yeah, it really did seem like they were making things up a little bit uh, as as they went along. And we can get into the um, the Masasi and Weidman result as well with the use of instant replay and then it was justified after the fact in you know sort of a loosey-goosey way in terms of whether referees really can look at instant replay there so I think I think there's a huge learning curve there for New York and you know yeah, I like to be optimistic I mean hopefully they get up to speed and these are some growing pains and over the next year or two we're not going to see this kind of nonsense but but yeah you know UFC 210 had yeah, yeah I think had three articles worth of Regulatory, uh, legal issues that that popped up there. So, uh, it, you know, it didn't it didn't inspire a lot of confidence on the regulatory front.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think on the the Musasi I think the two things that really stick out to me is ultimately the doctor's call because he didn't know uh, what day it was, what the date was, what that. I sit there and say is, if you went to a fire right after a fight is over, after being in there for how many X minutes, how many of them know might know what the day of the week is, what time it is, what what month it is? I think that's that's got to be part of, of the question there. And then in terms of how it ultimately came down to what the ruling was, which I s- still feel I believe the right ruling was was made, the fact it was a TKO, even though, but how did ultimately they get that ruling is John McCarthy saying something to Dan Mercado was that – what John had saw live, or did he use the assistance of a television monitor?
1: Yeah, and and either way, you get into the same regulatory question, which is, is any of that allowed? Is polling another official allowed? And I, and I appreciate that polling is a regular industry practice. If a referee doesn't see something during a fight-ending sequence, Uh, and John McCarthy teaches this in in his command training he says you poll another official because you want to get it right and and that's respectful you do want to get things right but when you bring these things into the appellate process or into the judicial review process these uh, sort of off-the-record practices don't really necessarily fly you got to look at what the written rules are and New York has and and, and i'll backtrack a little bit here um stopping the bout based on doctor's advice there's no controversy there whatsoever right whether the guy normally knows the day of the week or not uh if the doctor is saying this guy is not medically fit to continue fighting because of brain trauma full stop that's going to be the end of it and no court is going to ever criticize that decision but the question then is can the referee in the cage who makes a call, right? He, he stopped the action on the basis that he called a foul. Can he then change his mind based on outside factors, be it video replay or be it polling another official? And the rules don't really seem to give him that power. But where the whole thing falls apart is if Weidman appeals, and he's claiming he's going to appeal, during that process, the commission clearly can look at the video evidence. And when they look at the video evidence, uh, Weidman was not fouled and then he was stopped justifiably so based on medical advice. So I, I think the chances of his appeal succeeding are slim to none. But what I, you know, what's not clear is whether New York actually has instant replay use for the officials right then and there. I don't think that they do. I think that's another one of these examples of the commission making it up as they go along and they're trying to justify the end result. The commission could look at video on appeal just like they could look at any relevant evidence but i don't know that the referee himself could look at video replay and you know the follow-up question for the commission when they you know, you know they responded to some reporters saying the video use was okay the follow-up question is well what's your policy then can mm-hmm. reps look at video and in what circumstances can they look at video i think of you know, think of the nfl with instant replay there's a policy that's written that mm-hmm. says when where and how instant replay could be used new york doesn't have that kind of a policy and so again i think they're justifying uh what happened uh on on maybe you know not the firmest foundation but the end result was right and if you go through legal channels that end result is going to be maintained i'm, you know, I'm pretty confident of that i I think the chances are really slim that the commission overturns it and if weidman takes it further to the courts i can't see the courts overturning that in-cade result the right result um was reached it was just an unusual path to reaching it
0: Let's be honest about you. You've got a slim chance of getting anything overturned by a commission.
1: It's slim to not, yeah. <laughs> I
0: mean, especially yeah. in this Weidman case.
1: Yeah, it's tough. But, you know, it happens sometimes. What was, uh, you know, I'm thinking Invicta there a couple bouts back. Yeah, um, That's a rarity, though. It's a rarity. And and I think that's a case where the referee probably fell on his sword and admitted he made a mistake. He called a foul that wasn't a foul and on the appeal it's pretty clear that that you know really led to the fight ending sequence the referee's directions there and, and it's a rarity but it happens sometimes right so it's just, you know no harm in trying but i wouldn't i wouldn't spend too much on legal fees fighting these things that's for sure it's, it's usually best just to move on
0: and of course uh, the pearl gonzalez situation which uh... I talked to another regulator about that incident and I kind of said, you know, explain me how this kind of goes on. And, you know, sometimes, you know, even though you would think that would be a rule that the UFC would want to know, obviously they know now. um, And probably I'm guessing, I don't know how, how they do this correctly with their fighters, but I guess maybe, maybe do you send an email to every uh, manager of a women's fighter and, and and say, Hey, if you're going to fight in New York, just understand that there is this rule. We don't know if this pertains to your client or not, but you do need to be made aware of this rule. But you know, of course, uh, it, it got a lot of people talking, especially about, uh, a certain fighter that fought at, at UFC 205, even though she's never publicly come out and said that she has had this, this done. But, uh, you know, you feel bad for for Pearl Gonzalez and what she had to go through in terms of this, but I think the end of the day is how is this not known by the UFC? First off, I mean, they the UFC is supposed to know all these rules.
1: Yeah, so so the first thing I tweeted when the story was breaking it was something along the lines of uh, if you're a manager and you don't know this stuff, you're negligent, and mm-hmm. you know it's really true in that That's if you're point. taking. A cut of the fighter's purse on the basis that you're managing their career and you're giving them advice and you're sending them into a jurisdiction where they actually can't fight based on things that you should know. You're negligent. But, and, and you know, this is a big but, a manager probably couldn't have known that in Pearl's situation because there wasn't any rule on the books that said she couldn't fight with breast implants. And that's where it comes back to the New York Commission making things up as they go along. When, when you go through it, they're regulations say nothing about breast implants but then they have a memo Uh, it's basically a medical safety policy that says certain things that they won't allow and that's probably fair game and breast implants is one of the things that says they don't allow the problem with that is the memo was based on boxing and the memo Mm -hmm. was written before MMA was legal in the state of New York. And so then you have this huge, and it was a saga, right? Getting MMA legal in New York was a drawn-out saga. And so you go through all of that stuff and all of the regulatory changes and all of the debates, and they change all of their laws. They make MMA legal. Nowhere in that process do they say breast implants won't be allowed for an MMA fighter. And so for Pearl Gonzalez or her manager or her representative, I really can't fault them for not knowing this rule because the commission – Extended a boxing rule into MMA. And when you go through all of the MMA regulations, one of the things it talks about is uh, female athletes wearing a chest protector, and that's not on the books for boxing. So you've got differences in safety standards between the two sports. You know, whether they make sense or not is a different debate. But when you go through the legal side of it, the sports are regulated differently with different rules in place. And, and so I really don't think you could fault. Um, you no, know, Pearl or her management for not knowing this, But but coming back to your question, how do you go about doing this? I think every single manager has a positive duty, and if fighters don't have managers, fighters themselves have this obligation to understand the laws, the rules and regulations of any state or any province or any jurisdiction that they're fighting in, because it does change from state to state to province to province. There is no uniformity. And you really, you know, if this is your profession, if you do this stuff for a living, be it as a fighter or a manager, spend the time and understand the rules, just like Weidman, Musasi, and the grounded fighter debate that takes place here. These guys need to know this stuff. They need to appreciate this. It seems like Musashi knew it, by the way, yeah. the way he lifted up Weidman's hand when delivering the knee. Like that was very, you know, that was clever. I'm sure it's by design. I mean, there's a guy taking his profession very seriously and and you know fighters as i say, they, they really have an obligation beat with doping understanding usada versus the states and understanding state to state what's allowed, what's not allowed before they agree to about any jurisdiction, they should get up to speed on the nuances of that jurisdiction whether there's something they could take advantage of or whether it's something that's gonna uh you know potentially cause roadblocks for them
0: yeah because i think you even uh tweeted out the actual memo out there it says boxer it doesn't say mixed martial artist yeah
1: i'd like to i'd like to pretend I could take credit for the letting her fight but i doubt my my article had nothing you know had anything to do with it but 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 you know that's right it it did say boxer it didn't say m m a and and the main thing for me is that memo was written something in like twenty fourteen like a good year or two before m m a was even legal so it's pretty it's a real stretch to take that and try to apply it to m m a if you want to ban breast implants an MMA based on medical advice, that's fine, but put the rules together to do it. Don't make it up, especially after weigh-in at the last minute. I mean, this woman is fighting in New York, goes through a fight camp, you know, has all the expenses that she has, makes weight, and then they say, oops, you've got breast implants, we don't want you fighting, based on a rule that may or may not exist. I mean, the whole thing just looked terrible, right? <laughs> so between, between the weigh-in and then that, and then you have the officiating controversy on the Masasi fight, the whole... Event left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it just and and you know the UFC understands and you know Mark Ratner is, is going to be the one that has to deal with the commission on that aspect. Hopefully, hopefully it does get better by the time uh, they are back in July in Long Island. Maybe Chris Wyman ends up uh, being on that fight card. Who knows? Maybe there. But yeah, it was a uh, it was a bizarre weekend. I, I think that's about the best way to kind of describe everything. I never thought that. I would be talking about uh, breast implants while covering MMA.
1: Yeah, well, that's a rich sport, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I joked with, with uh, somebody else in the media. We were going back and forth via text, and I said, I go. So how long is it before someone is going to put a clickbait article out there that is nothing but pictures of female fighters that may or may not have breast implants?
1: Yeah, oh, no, well, hey, you got to get the clicks any way you can in this business, I guess, right?
0: I, I guess, but yeah, it's. Um, I didn't see any, so I was, I was kind of surprised. I was like, maybe we're actually going somewhere as a, as an MMA uh, news website that maybe those those days have gone on, but yeah absolutely weird. Also, I saw on your uh, website combatsportslaw.com something that I am very familiar with because of uh, some freelance stuff I do in terms of marketing was about uh, pay-per-view piracy in terms of the commercial side of this and when I say commercial side, we are talking about restaurants, bars, businesses that purchase UFC pay-per-views and it is not, you know, this is not where the bar goes up to their cable or satellite receiver and hits buy like you do at your home. They have to go through a promotions company, which is Johans Promotion, that then works with their, uh, you know, cable and satellite provider to to make sure you're legally showing it. And um, it's been for some time; it's very well known that Johan uh, basically has. Uh, People that go out to see whether bars and restaurants are illegally showing pay per views. And, uh, you had a story recently in relation to UFC 165, where, you know, typically when these lawsuits initially come out, there is some huge number Johan is going for, but ultimately it's a very small amount of money that ultimately ends up happening. Um, I don't feel bad for the businesses that get caught. I'll just be honest with you because it's not cheap to run these pay-per-views. Um, I think it's – I remember there was a, a jiu-jitsu gym probably, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago that people were all up arms with, with Johan going after them. But I'm like, I don't blame Johan because this is how they make their money.
1: Yeah, so so I've got you know two thoughts on this. And first and foremost, I agree. If you're pirating – a pay-per-view product especially on the commercial side of things there's really no sympathy right you know this is you know this is fraud and and you're going to get sued and you're going to pay and and there's nothing wrong with that but on the flip side of it Are the heavy handed prosecutions, and I think those are problematic as well. So, you've got a commercial pay per view that costs one or two thousand dollars to buy the license for, and you pull a fast one, you don't buy it, all of a sudden you're being sued for fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, and there's no relationship between the two, right? The losses aren't the damages that are being sought. And so, I've probably written about fifty of these articles over the years, and they're not all that interesting as standalone articles but when you piece them together they tell a story and you commented on it already which is what's typically awarded is far far less than what's being asked for in in these lawsuits and so every now and then you'll see these headlines be it from you know the ufc or others saying fifty thousand dollar award for piracy and they send this message you know it's like that deep voice, that FBI warning at the beginning of the pay-per-view, like you're going to be you know, thrown away for the rest of your life if piracy occurs. But you know, it's a really misleading picture. The reality is uh, if piracy occurs, you can be sued, but the damages are typically two, three, four thousand dollars 4000 not $20,000, 40000 $100,000. And so, so you get the promoters taking these one-off examples of high awards and putting it out to the public as if that's the norm. And I just like to show that that's not the norm. That being said, these prosecutions are heavy-handed because the federal legislation that lets uh, you know, the lawsuits occur, it's based on either cable theft or satellite theft. And built into the statutes are uh, loser pays legal provisions. So when you're sued based on federal piracy and when you lose, you have to pay the other side's actual legal costs. And so there's no disincentive to Joe Hand saying, I'm going to sue you for fifty grand. We caught you red handed, we're suing you for fifty grand. If you're the bar and you say, Hey, I want to pay you three or four grand, make this right, Joe Hand could say, piss off with that. We're just going to take it all the way through to trial. And even if Joe Hand I'll call it loses a trial, even if they get an award that's similar to past awards, like three or four grand instead of fifty grand, they get that money plus the legal costs. So it's it's Really a nasty spot to be in if you're being sued because you can get this heavy settlement demand and if you don't take it you're going to have your own legal expenses and even if things go well for you at trial where, where you're found liable but you don't have to pay a whack of money you're going to pay all the other side's legal costs so you know the hip in the pocket book is very very heavy. Uh, and you know, I guess the bottom line is piracy is not a good idea on the commercial <laughs> front. Don't do it.
0: It, it. It's not worth it. I mean, I mean, but the problem is, is it, at least in the area I live in, not as many people go out and watch UFC pay per views anymore. And I think part of that is I, I don't get um a big sense of excitement for for a lot of these UFC pay-per-views. I mean, like UFC 211 is a great pay-per-view, but I don't know for the casual sports fan if that's going to draw a fan to go out to to a bar. I mean, because you have to understand that the way these are priced are, A, it's based on your seating capacity, which is set by the fire marshal, and B, it's are you committing to just airing one UFC pay-per-view or are you committing to... Airing multiple UFC pay-per-views, and if you commit to more pay-per-views, you do pay a, a little bit less. I mean, it's um, it, it's a tough decision for a bar to, to make because, um, you know, more times than not, you hear bar owners say that uh, they just view airing a UFC pay-per-view as a cost of business to get you know get their clientele in, um, and they'll necessarily say that you don't necessarily make money unless you're going to put a cover charge at the door. Um, which yeah. that is something that's going to turn what people away. And I, I'm gonna tell you, if this Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather fight happens, you can about guarantee every place that shows that pay per view. Which I would guess, if you if the bar has a seating capacity of around 200 people, that bar's probably that that is probably gonna cost about four thousand dollars for that bar to show, maybe five thousand dollars for that for that bar to to show that. You can about guarantee everyone's putting a cover charge, and I and I don't blame any bar for doing that.
1: Yeah, well, if that if that bout takes place, you're right. The pay per view pricing, be it commercial or residential, is going to be through the roof compared to the norm, right? The, oh you, yeah, and, you're, and the bars are going to you know have to find a way to make up for that. You're absolutely right. But but yeah, these, you know when you go through these judgments, it's amusing in that you know you talk about the sort of dying trend of the popularity of the bar pay per view, and many of these judgments speak to that. Um, where, where it says, okay, the seating capacity is so many, so the cost of the pay-per-view would be two grand, and there were six patrons in the bar, or nine patrons in the bar. I mean, yeah. you just see a lot of these events not not drawing in a commercially viable way. And just legally, that's where, that's where we're asking for these heavy-handed damages doesn't sit well with me we say okay the thing would have cost one or two grand nobody's in the bar even watching this thing or it's on one of seven screens in the bar it's obviously not the draw that has the patrons in there and then you get the license holder saying we want thirty thousand dollars in damages you know it's just it's just an over-the-top um, uh, sort of a sort of result but yeah my sense is the you know the sort of standard UFC pay-per-views being a draw in and of themselves that model doesn't seem to exist so much anymore. Now it's going to be based on who's headlining, be it a McGregor, or be it another name that yes. for whatever reason draws in uh, you know a bigger a bigger it's... audience. You know maybe G- GSP will you know, pack yeah. the bars again in Canada, but but uh, but just because it's UFC, it seems like the luster of that has disappeared. And I don't know if it's the WME era or if it's Reebok or if it's whatever, but it just seems that over the years the business models changed.
0: I think it's it's called a failure to create stars. I mean, when you think about right now in the UFC of fighters that are actually fighting, who who is the draw? I mean, right now you essentially have no Conor McGregor. You have no Ronda Rousey. Sorry, Daniel Cormier is not a pay-per-view draw. John Jones, is he a pay-per-view draw? I mean, you look at his past co-pay per views; didn't necessarily show that. I mean, the, the, the Cormier pay-per-view did nice. But, you know, the UFC really struggles at, at pay-per-view draws and, and getting fan bases excited. And I've said this multiple times. If you're an owner of a bar, a general manager of a bar, and you are pirating a UFC pay-per-view, you're asking to get sued. And oh, yeah. uh, if you're the general manager of that bar and your owner doesn't know that you're pirating, uh, you're probably going to be have a job when he gets that lawsuit.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's not just Johan's investigative efforts. I mean, the reality is some bar in your town is doing this through legal channels. And when they see that you're not, guess what, they're going to rat you out. I mean, that's what happens. That's how these, you know, that's how these investigators get in there. It's not tough to see the bars that are advertising it that didn't buy the sub license. And, and so you're right. It's just a really poor business choice to display these things if you're not going to pay the licensing fee and then from there it's just the business decision of when is it worthwhile right when do you shell out one two three grand for the pay-per-view are you going to make the profit back and and yeah i think you're right it only works when there's stars and and the ufc for years now has had a ufc first branding mentality and i guess that's you know, you know, you, know, you know that's biting them right now. It's it's just hurting their business
0: model. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You know, uh, um, because I I went out for UFC two ten pay per view, which I normally don't do. Usually watch at my house or buddy's house. But we decided, hey, let, let's go out. Let's go out. uh you know, quote unquote hashtag Saturday are for the boys, and uh, watched. Uh, we were at a, a local bar and. It wasn't necessarily full of people who were there to, to watch uh, the MMA event, but what was interesting to me was for a long time, the UFC had an app called UFC Bars. And so when you're we trying to figure out where to go, I I put that, uh, you know, into the, you know, the, the Apple, uh, you know, app store and it wasn't even there anymore. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. And, you know, ultimately found a place and, you know, we had a good time, you know, it was, uh, you know, and, and uh, and it really wasn't until about the co-main event that people have seemed to be getting interested in the fights. But uh, UFC 211 is a great pay-per-view. Now, in, in terms of, of lawsuits, uh, there's plenty of lawsuits going on in, in MMA, and particularly with the UFC, you've got the Mark Hunt lawsuit. Uh, you've also got the antitrust lawsuit, which I just figure we're going to be talking about this one in 2020.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's been. I was just looking before you before you called. At the history of that, and so that was back in December 2014. So we're you know we're coming on two and a half years now that it's plugging along. But that's complex litigation, so you know, the fact that it's dragged out so long isn't unusual at all. But yeah, I think it's going to be a long time coming. Still, that that's going to be in the headlines.
0: You know what I thought it was the most interesting thing that came out of that lawsuit recently is I mean, look, Bellator's got a lot of momentum right now in the MMA. Um, market share of what they're doing, the, the fighters are, they're bringing in, and for whatever reason the UFC letting certain fighters just ultimately walk away. But it was interesting to me of a part of the UFC essentially trying to get all of their contracts a, a part of this litigation. Which, if you're Bellator, I completely understand why they don't want to turn all that stuff over because that's that's their business practices.
1: Oh yeah, well, you know, uh, you know what's the saying? I'll butcher it, but but uh, why? You know, why not make a tragedy into an opportunity? I mean, I got a, yeah. I got a real kick out of that very aggressive litigation tactic, where the UFC says, "Okay, if we're a supposed monopsony here, and you know, you we've cornered this market, competition's the key." Hey, Bellator, open your books, show us I every wish. contract you have, show us every negotiation you have, yeah. give us absolutely everything. And, and and I think that still has to be duked out in court in terms of how. Uh, much they need to respond to those subpoenas. But, yeah, the UFC was very aggressive, and they're trying to make the best of a bad situation here. So which that's I, a very interesting skirmish in the <laughs> overall war.
0: Which I can't help but wonder, is that part of the UFC's thought process is we're going to show that Bellator's got all this money to throw at fighters? Because I can tell you, they're throwing a lot of money at fighters. I think people would be surprised to hear the amount of money Matt Mitrione is making, Phil Davis is making, Ryan Bader's making, Lorenz Larkin is making, and which is which is really interesting about what's going on with those contracts in particular is Bellator is not doing the standard MMA contract of here's your show purse and here's your win purse. They're giving them a flat fee, and I do wonder if we're going to look back on this time period about four years from now and go ultimately Bellator changed the way fire contracts were done.
1: Well, number one, that's awesome, right? It's oh, yeah. great to hear that guys are making good money, and it's great that there's legitimate competition on the high end of the MMA market. And Bellator seems to be doing wonderful things since uh, Coker took over. Uh, you know, signing these well-known UFC guys on the latter part of their career were we're you know maybe they're not competitive for the title anymore but the public knows them and, and the numbers seem you know I won't, I won't pretend to have any expertise in the TV business but but the ratings seems to be you know, you know you get Tito Ortiz or you get Chael Sonnen or you get whoever headlining these cards and they seem to get high high ratings i mean they're right up there with any uh, you know of the UFC Fox events and so Coker seems to be onto something and i'm really happy for the fighters that there's a bit of a open market there where they could sell their services and you know when the lawsuit was launched the landscape wasn't so great but when you look at it right now it really seems to be moving into a much better direction uh, for free agency and for fighters and you have more guys willing to test free agency you have more guys being vocal that they're going to let their contract Run their course, and that, you know, then some of them get rewarded with with Scott Coker and Bellator throwing good money at them. So, you know, I think I think overall there's some very positive changes to the MMA landscape right now.
0: Yeah, I think the key with Bellator in terms of their television ratings is you know you can get the the big viewership for a, a Tito, a, a Shell fight, a, a Rampage fight, you know, guys along those lines. But how do you get the fan base excited for? Eduardo Dantas, Leandro Higo. How do you get yeah. them excited for uh you know last week's card of Rafael Carvalho and Melon Manhoff, which was an international event that aired, you know, in the afternoon on a Saturday. Uh, you know, here on the East Coast, I was at three o'clock Eastern time. You know, you look at the, the event coming up this week in Budapest, that's a tape delay show, which I absolutely just can't stand because at the end of the day, Viacom does not treat Bellator like a sports property. I mean, even in the in the press release that went out about uh, the Paramount Networks, it calls Bellator a non-scripted series, which I'm like, no, it's a sports event. It's not a non-scripted series. It, it's, it amazes me how much Viacom goes out of their way not to call Bellator a sports property. It, it's, it's absolutely amazing to me, but they are definitely uh, doing some great things. Uh, also on your website, you had a note about the wrongful death lawsuit of of Dennis Munson. Of course, we all remember that, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, had, had fought uh, under a promotion that's run by Duke Rufus. What, what's going on there with that lawsuit?
1: Well, this one's interesting to me because, so, so this happened in Wisconsin and it's a good three years ago. It's his amateur kickboxing debut and he dies from trauma in the ring. And, you know, it's a very unfortunate situation. And legally it's interesting to me because at the time wisconsin didn't regulate amateur kickboxing so it was a hundred percent promoter put on show and they made whatever choices they wanted to make about ringside officials about doctors about paramedics about all the plans in the case tragedy occurs all the things that state commissions typically look after was left in the hands of the promoter and so you know in a nutshell the promoters being sued the referees being sued and the ringside doctors being sued and there's legal precedent that liability could flow to these guys you have to go overseas you got to go to england but there was a case it was probably 10 15 years ago now where boxing in england uh is self-regulated as well there's something called the british boxing board of control bbbc and it sounds like it's a government agency but it's not it's just you know this group that formed over the years and for whatever reason by consensus everybody agreed that these guys should regulate the sport they had a tragedy occur on their watch and they got sued and it went up through the appellate process in the courts in England and I'm going to England because it's a common law analysis they say okay when you don't have a state commission can these promoters be found liable can these officials be found liable and the court went through all the reasons as to why they can in those circumstances why they were liable. That same legal analysis, at least a very similar one, will apply in this uh, Dennis Munson lawsuit because without that state regulation, you have to start looking at everybody's relationship to each other and whether the common law is going to let there be liability. And the the reporter, I just want to give his name because he deserves credit, John Diedrich of... um, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I don't know if he broke the story. I think he did, but he certainly has been um, the most diligent in following up on it. He did a great job a year or two ago. He took the footage from the bout, and it's tough to watch. If if anybody's listening to this and they haven't watched it, you could watch the footage of the bout, and he broke it down in some cases frame by frame, and he brought in a whole bunch of experts in the combat sports industry you know other regulators and ringside physicians and he's pointed out uh you know what he says were flaws obvious signs of distress in this kickboxer that were missed by the referee and the ringside doctor and and then there's footage even of the doctor looking at his phone at times during the bout or in between rounds instead of looking at the fighter and that stuff's not going to play out very well in court so i think there's you know i think there's some reasons that uh you know, there's some real strength to this lawsuit, um, and, you know, hopefully the parties are able to reach a settlement instead of this, you know, drawing out in court. But but legally, it's, it's an interesting case because it has to rely on the common law talking about who owes a duty, and then the courts are going to have to struggle with what's the standard, what standards should be in place if you want to host a combat sports event. And from there, you probably will look to other states legislation in terms of setting out what needs to be done. And and then you're going to scrutinize what Duke Rufus did and whether that was consistent with best industry practices. So, you know, it's a tragic situation, but, uh, but it is an interesting lawsuit to follow.
0: Another lawsuit that uh, I, I think is interesting is, is the Mark Hunt lawsuit. Of course, a lot of people bring up is, you know, Mark Hunt, I uh, understand why he has a feeling he is, but he also is making a lot of money by the UFC. And I don't know if he can make that money anywhere else, Do you you think that ultimately this just gets settled out of court and we never hear the terms?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm surprised it hasn't, and if I had to guess, I would say it will settle before it goes to trial. So there's a motion to dismiss right now by the UFC and I think by Brock Lesnar as well. And what I think those motions will accomplish is drastically strip down the lawsuit. So, So here, I'll... I'll back up a little bit. First, I'll talk about how a doping lawsuit will succeed. And I don't think Mark Hunt, um, Mark Hunt fits that category. If If you want to sue for doping, the path of least resistance is to sue based on assault and battery. So you know, just as a really basic concept, combat sports exist based on consent. So two guys or two women get in the cage or ring, and they're going to batter each other that's legal because they're consenting to it but you can't gain consent by fraud fraud vitiates consent and doping arguably meets the definition of fraud there's a a new york boxing lawsuit many years ago where uh one guy took the padding out of his gloves and then battered the crap out of his opponent and he was criminally convicted the court said that's criminal fraud you went in there knowing you're cheating ahead of time you've conspired to cheat and then you have this bout that takes place it's no longer a consensual contest it's now a battery it's now Mm -hmm. an assault beyond a reasonable doubt and so civilly doping probably meets that same standard i've written a few articles as to why i suggest that it does and so so when you have doping and the bout takes place the clean competitor could sue on the basis that consent was fraudulently obtained where mark hunt runs into a problem and he's not even making that allegation but where he runs into a problem is he had interviews ahead of time saying i don't care if the guy's doping i'll fight him anyways. It's what i do i fight dopers um you know those those words come back to bite him um but but what mark hunt's lawyers have done is they've made it a rico lawsuit they've made it a racketeering lawsuits this is basically legislation designed to take down the mafia yeah. and and he's saying this is this longstanding criminal conspiracy to have doping fighters go against clean fighters and th- the motion to dismiss is trying to kill that aspect and other aspects of the lawsuit my my guess is the motion succeeds in killing the RICO aspects of the lawsuit. Once that's out of the way, those allow treble damages to be awarded. So that's the real hammer that Mark Hunt's lawyer is using. Once that hammer's taken away from them, what's left is a you know much more run of the mill type of a lawsuit. And I think once once that's stripped down, Mark Hunt's negotiating position is weakened. And once it's weakened, I would imagine the parties make a quiet agreement to pay and move on. Because if I'm the UFC, I don't want doping in the sport Brought under the microscope of the courtroom over you know like a two week long or month long trial where you're talking about vitor belfour and t r t and all these steroid hall passes that either commissions or you know the u f c in house were handing out over the years, and you get into things like jurisdiction shopping of you know if you have t r t you're you're picking certain fighters to uh, compete in jurisdictions that are going to allow it. It really paints an ugly picture, and, and just from a PR perspective, I don't think the UFC wants that. If you do, you know, even if they successfully defend the lawsuit and they've got a very good chance of doing that, even if they win, it's one of these pyrrhic victories where they lose in terms of the overall bad press that they get, uh, you know, from the lawsuit because mainstream media, nobody really cares about these motion... <laughs> um, um you know you know the motion to dismiss or these other you know pretrial skirmishes but once you have a live body in the courtroom testifying you put the camera on them and, and the story's told out it becomes media friendly tv friendly and i think the ufc is going to take you know, you know take some hard knocks if they choose to fight it out the long way so i'm thinking they'll settle i'm hoping they settle but who knows
0: See, this is why I talk to guys like yourself and Jason Cruz and other guys who can can explain the legal aspect of me so I actually can understand what what is going on. Um, you know, one final question we had was about TKO uh, there uh, up in the Providence area in Canada and Quebec. And uh, just briefly kind of talk about that and, and just so how uh, – because Quebec is one of those provinces that it, it's really tough to put on an MMA show.
1: Yeah, so so I apologize to uh, – Whichever listener out there asked about TKO, I can't comment specifically on that promotion. Like, I'm not sure what what uh, they wanted me to get into, but I'll, I'll, I'll turn it around to talk about Quebec generally, which is, yeah, Quebec's one of these fun jurisdictions that doesn't care what the law says. So Quebec, even though they've had all these UFC events and they've hosted countless MMA events over the years... Quebec doesn't have legal MMA. They've got a regulation, if you read it, that legalizes a sport called mixed boxing. And, and you know, the reason behind that is it's what we talked about at the beginning of this episode, which is only boxing used to be legal in Canada. That was the only combat sport you could have. And so Quebec thought it'd be cute to call it mixed boxing and say that's a kind of boxing. So this is now a legal sport. And they passed this law, which they hoped was... Would comply with the criminal code and in short like i won't get into all the peculiarities but in short it's basically boxing when you're standing or kickboxing when you're standing and then when you're grappling no striking allowed but they don't care about that they just they just completely ignore their own regulations and they let mma take place by and large using the unified rules and that's one of these weird things. Like, you know, nobody cares, right? Like, I'll write these articles. Nobody cares. They say, "Wow, Mac- you know, McCracken, shut up." We want the UFC to come to Quebec. We want it to take yeah. place under the rules, and that's fine. But what if it's not fine? What if you're on a contract of? 250 and 250, 250 to show, 250 to win, and you lose by ground and pound. Well, you lost illegally in Quebec, and that fighter might want his quarter million dollars. And so all of a sudden you have a problem with the regulator turning a blind eye. And I'm not saying Quebec should follow these bizarre rules. What I'm saying is if they want MMA to take place under unified rules, change the law. It's not hard to make the law read the way you want it to read, it, it makes much more sense to do that than to completely ignore it, because you run into these really bizarre situations. Like, I'll go through events, uh, result by result, and point to the ones that were illegally decided under under those rules. And to the extent that a fighter wants to make waves, they can make waves, but nobody does, right? You get the guy on the twenty and twenty contract, and they maybe lose based on the regulator not following. The laws, they're not going to make waves about that. They, you know, they want to stick with the promotion and, and not be seen as a whiner in the media. But when you get a high-profile event where they're ignoring the rules, I think there's going to be consequences. And then more importantly, not on the money side, but on the safety side, say a tragedy occurs, say a guy dies during – <laughs> you know, like a ground-and-pound kind of a finish there, and Quebec saying they're not allowing it, but the ref is standing idly by because he's using the unified rules, there's going to be really nasty legal fallout there. So there's, you know, for a number of reasons, Quebec and all of these states and provinces, they need to get their ducks in a row and, and, and make sure they regulate the sport with integrity.
0: Well, I thought the interesting thing that you had back in, what was it, February when they had the the show up there in Halifax was, basically what the, the guys in the main event are, are you know legally what they, they can get paid.
1: 10%, right? 10% of – I'm forgetting the language now offhand. I haven't looked at that article. But it, it says the main event guys – in a combat sport you know they call it boxing for the same goofy rules you know that Quebec had to call it boxing but but the main event in in a boxing bout, which includes MMA they're entitled to 10% of the promoter revenues and it's a really weirdly written law like you think they can get these things clear it's not but what's unclear is what do they mean by the revenues is it the gate receipts, in which case the UFC is probably complying with the law, or is it all revenues? And the law's written in such a way that the stronger argument is all revenues. And I thought, and I still think, if a fighter took advantage of that, they could probably force the UFC to open their books on all streams of revenue prorated to that event, so be it, uh, you know, the Canadian TV contract, the mm-hmm. Fox contract, uh, Fight Pass, any way they're making a buck off of that event the fighter could ask for 10% of all of that and and actually I think that's another one where when I wrote the story it was several years ago first I think Rory McDonald was fighting um, you know was headlining the card and and I wrote that story back then a reporter reached out to the commission and the commission basically said oh no that that law doesn't apply we've updated We've updated our laws and that irritated me you know, the commission is basically publicly saying this doesn't apply even though it's black and white mm-hmm. so i wrote to the um oh i'm forgetting the name now but whoever keeps the most updated versions of the laws in the province in case there was maybe an updated law that wasn't published and they said nope this law hasn't been changed in years and <laughs> years and years it's still good and then you have uh um you know the recent event takes place sure enough. Law still hasn't been changed. I think they have like an internal memo, basically using the unified rules. But, but again, when you get this thing, if it if it ever goes in the courtroom, the court's not going to care about internal memos or wink, wink, nod, nod agreements. The court's going to care about what the actual legislation says. And if it says the main avenger gets 10%, the courts are going to enforce that. So yeah, that's that's a very interesting one. I was actually really surprised the UFC even came back there, given that that law's on the books. But if the regulator's turning a blind eye, I guess the UFC doesn't care.
0: Yeah, I remember. And this was several years ago when when Zufa was lobbying in my home state of Florida because they were trying to get uh, some of the rules uh, changed here in the state of Florida, which ultimately did end up happening, which, uh, you know, you know, people pointing to oh they don't want medical suspensions and fighter payroll public. But really what they were trying to do was they had to it was public record of how much money they got in television revenue, how much money they got. Uh, you know, from, you know, concessions on that night of the event, which was, uh, you you do understand as a, a business why they don't want that available via public record request because not just could a, a media member request that, a rival promotion could request that information.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you can't fault them for protecting their business interests, but on the flip side, you have to feel bad for the fighters not having an informed landscape, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, you know, like boxers have in terms of what the revenues are. And so that's why you have to applaud guys like, um you, you know the MMAFA trying to get um trying to get the Ali Act expanded to MMA to give these basic I I still you know, have you know, my doubts to the fighters yeah, yeah. I, yeah no 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 you know you, you know I'm not saying you know, I'm not saying that's the right move or the wrong move but you could certainly applaud I, efforts to you know you, you know, to let fighters know what the promoters are making off of them. So when they sit down at the negotiating table, they know their market value. I mean, it's, you know, it's tough to argue that that's the right move. And, and I sort of shake my head when lawmakers um, are you know, allowing the promoter to close the books and have these one-sided mm-hmm. negotiations.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've had people basically say that it's, it, it's, a, it's a good step in the right direction, but it's not the answer. You know, it's a part of the equation to to ultimately fix things. But I I still feel that I think that the major hurdle they are going to have is will President Donald Trump, who has a excellent relationship with people inside of uh, the UFC and and the UFC ownership. Would he ultimately sign that into law? And I don't think he does.
1: Well, Jason, we not only share our good looks, but we share our thoughts on that as well. I, I, the first thing I thought was when Trump's elected uh, on the MMA side, yeah, you know, there's your veto, right? If it uh, through all those efforts, if it ever gets all the way on his desk, I think you get the veto there because he's buddy buddy with Dana White and other industry stakeholders. So I I I don't know that that's going to pay off, but who knows? I mean, I the MMAFA is like the li- you know the little engine that could I, I really respect those guys they just sort of quietly keep plugging away plugging away plugging away and of all the people coming to the dance trying to organize fighters those guys persistently keep walking in the right direction so i really yeah, i really applaud their efforts
0: i i tell you what I, I am i am very surprised how many um people have jumped on that you know i i how many you know co-signers of that bill there is i never thought it would get this far so i think yeah, they no, – no.
1: yeah i agree yeah, I agree. It's 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 impressive momentum behind it, and they just keep going.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and look, no one should be surprised that the UFC or any MMA promotion would lobby uh, against it. But I'll also say this: you know, may, maybe the MAFA isn't necessarily putting you know putting money in lobbying, but they're lobbying this bill. Let's let's not let's not kid ourselves here. Um, but I, I think they just. They have a long way. I mean, I, I think it'd be great if there was something along those lines come to MMA, but I, I just, I still think it's, I just can't see it happening. And I, and I, I you know, maybe if uh, there was a different president in the Oval Office, maybe there's a better chance, but I think with this president, I just, I just don't see it happening. I, I really don't. I really don't. But, but Eric, I, I really do appreciate you coming on this edition of the MA Insiders podcast for people who are not uh, aware of your website, where they can follow you, let them know uh, how they can get in touch with you.
1: Sure. So all social media, just my name, Eric McGracken, E-R-I-K-M-A-G-R-A-K-E-N and com. That's my combat sports law website where you know, if you're interested in this regulatory stuff, um, that's that's where I report on all things legal and MMA.
0: And, of course, uh, the MMA Insiders podcast, always available on RadioInfluence.com. I also host the MMA Report podcast uh, coming up on Friday of this week. I will have a preview podcast for UFC on Fox 24. Myself and Daniel Galvano will get you ready for the fights that are going to take place on Saturday in Kansas City. Of course, next week, live on Fight TV, uh, which is a sponsor of this podcast. I will be calling Battlegrounds MMA with Dustin Poirier. So look forward to uh, calling those fights next Friday night here in my hometown of Tampa. Tampa at the Tampa Convention Center. If you live in Tampa, tickets are still available for that event. Be sure, if you're not subscribed to this podcast, uh, subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, all the places that you can listen to podcasts. If there's anyone you want to hear on the M.A. Insider's podcast, just shoot me a tweet at Jason underscore Floyd. I'll do my best to get that person here on the podcast. So I appreciate everyone listening to the podcast and uh, look forward to uh, whatever the next guest host may be on this podcast. But once again, this has been the M.A. Insider's podcast, which you always hear on RadioInfluence.com. This is an Ian Beckles flavor in your ear quick fix on Radio Influence.
2: Jerry Jones is trying to get the NFL to ease up on the marijuana laws. Um, it's about time now, people. Just in general, um, let me tell you how the marijuana laws work in the league. A lot of people don't really understand how it, how it works. A lot of people, I you know, the funny part is, I didn't understand how it worked during the, during the, while I played. I understand. Now, um, you know, you, well, this is what I played. It's a little different now, I believe. You know you're going to get drug tested in July during training camp. So July, training camp usually started the last week of July. So July 25th, something like that. So you know that the first day or second day of training camp, so July 26th, you're going to get drug tested by the NFL. You knew this. You don't get drug tested the whole off season. You know July 26th, you're going to get drug tested. Therefore, June 26th, you stop smoking. Now, I'm going to preface it by saying this. I didn't smoke it at that time. I didn't say I'm not smoking it now, but I didn't smoke it at that time. I was scared of, you know, just the stress of the whole thing. So, I would watch everybody around me with a month left stop smoking and taking what you got to clear your system out. The day they, they do the drug tests on July 26th during training camp, that night, everybody is high as giraffe pussy because they haven't been high for a month. Fact. And the rest of the season, they could smoke every day, all day. So how what is that doing? If you're just stopping people from smoking for one month, it's not doing anything whatsoever.
0: You can find Ian Beckle's Flavor in Your Ear on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.